Well, good morning, church. As we begin this morning, um, I thought it would be good to open with a trigger warning. Uh, That's all the rage nowadays, right? Trigger warning. And, and, And that's because the biblical truths in our text today are just as likely to trigger your inner defense lawyer as they are to inform your conscience as a Christian. Your inner defense lawyer. You know that. You know that guy. It's that inner impulse that we all have that's more interested in identifying exceptions and loopholes than than honestly considering the countless ways that God's truths apply to our lives. It's that instant sinful reflex that we quickly weaponize the truths of God's word with against other people while refusing, just refusing to let it have that very impact that it should have on our lives so that it can expose and destroy our sin. We all have that inner defense lawyer. There's not, there's not a single person among us who's not prone to this kind of response, especially when it comes to our individual liberties in Christ, our freedoms in Christ. In many ways, it's just hardwired into our DNA because it's been passed down generation to generation to generation from our first father, Adam. It's our natural disposition as fallen humans, both before and after we come to faith in Christ. So you might be wondering, what's the truth? What's the truth in our text today that requires such an introduction? It's the countercultural truth, and it's the main idea of my sermon today. It's this it's the gospel clarity and Christian unity are more important than our individual liberties in Christ. Gospel clarity and Christian unity are more important than our individual liberties in Christ. And unless we're tempted to believe that this principle only applies to minor issues, small little things that might happen in the church. Today's account helps us see how far Christians ought be willing to go. Because the most innocent person in this passage endures the greatest personal cost for the sake of the gospel. The most innocent person bears the greatest cost. With that in mind, let's turn to our text this morning. As we see to begin with the twofold purpose of Paul's visit to Jerusalem. We've been working our way through this book for a little over a year now. We are now on the final leg of Paul's journey that's going to take him to Rome. This is where it all begins. Beginning in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Let's just stop there for a minute. They glorified God. Now, now you notice I I, I have listed here that there's two purposes in Paul's visit. But if you're reading the text really closely, you might be wondering where I'm getting two purposes out of this text that only seems to have one. Paul shows up. And he gives a report of his missionary journeys. Well, there actually is another purpose to Paul's visit. And Luke actually 
doesn't record it at this stage of the book. We, we, he tips our hand to it later in the book, but he doesn't record it here. And there's a couple reasons for it. One of them actually might be just to protect the church in Jerusalem from the embarrassment and shame of what follows this episode. It just might be. See, because Luke really chose to admit Paul's deepest purpose in visiting Jerusalem. And that's to validate the true unity of the church. Does anybody remember what's going on when Paul's heading back to Rome or to Jerusalem? All we have to do is read his letters. We read his letters and find out that he had been collecting resources and funds to help the poorest of the poor among the church members in Jerusalem. He's taking money from the Gentiles, collecting it to bring a fund to deliver relief money to Jerusalem. And he's bringing it from Macedonia and Achaia and Asia Minor. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, that is the saints in Jerusalem, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of each week. Each of you is to put something aside and to store it up as he might prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I come, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go, they will accompany me. Obviously, this is written before Paul was told by the Spirit he needs to go because we get to his book in the book of Romans at the end, chapter 15. He says at the present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. So so what's he doing? He's on his way. He's on his way. He's bringing aid to the saints from Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. This is no small deal. I mean, just think about it. We, we, we know from going through this book that the church is still trying to navigate the countless tensions and accusations and outright bigotry that exists between Jewish and Gentile Christians. They're still trying to work that thing out. And at every stage, every stage we've seen the apostles and the elders fight for the Christ-exalting goal of one church for all time, for all people. They've been fighting for one church and they've been doing a great job fighting against everything that's happened. Yet in the midst of all these challenges, Paul sees a glorious opportunity. He does the most beautiful thing. He organizes this relief fund from the Gentile churches for the needy Christians in Jerusalem so that Jerusalem Christians can have a tangible and undeniable expression of the Gentiles' love and concern and sense of unity and commonness with the church in Jerusalem. It's tangible. It's not words on a page. It's not a letter. It's something they can see. In fact, once we realize this, it helps us understand why all the elders are present. This is a serious visit. I mean, I mean, nothing has ever happened like this in the history of the church. You betcha that all the elders are present to, to visit and see what Paul has going on. 
And it's in this context of bringing this, this, this relief fund that then Paul now gives a report of what's going on in his third missionary journey. What, what, what has God done among the Gentiles? And he says one by one he recounted. So we're not going to go read everything that he's done, so how about we hit some bullet points? He can recount how God has protected him from harm and blessed his preaching in Ephesus. How God himself has spread the message of the gospel throughout Asia as travelers came through Ephesus. They heard the gospel proclaimed and they went and shared it as they went out on the trade routes through all the cities throughout Asia. Paul wasn't traveling through all the cities. The word is going out as people are hearing it and carrying it and carrying it farther. He he can tell the story about God performing performing mind-blowing miracles that validated his preaching. He can can share with them how God granted repentance to the believers in the church in Ephesus who were still secretly practicing magic in their homes and how God brought a revival to that city that was mired in magic and the occult. And, And he can even share the glorious news of how God used a unbelieving Gentile mayor to protect the church and validate the gospel's proclamation in the city of Ephesus. I mean, all of these things that God has done, he's recounting one by one. And the leaders respond by giving God the glory. Notice they're not carrying Paul around on a chair. Paul, you're so awesome. None of this would have happened apart from you. No, they're, they're giving God glory. They know it's not ultimately about the man who does the ministry. It's about God's work through the man. As as Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 3, when there was an issue between how the church was looking at him and some other guys, he says, it's neither he who plants nor he who waters who is anything, but only God gives the growth. It's only God. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to their labor. For we are God's fellow workers and you are God's fellow field, God's building. It's God who's doing it. The elders respond rightly. And in the midst of all this, we we might honestly think that Paul would be one of the most sought after and loved people in all of the church in Jerusalem. They should be having parades. Right? But as we transition to the next stage of the narrative, we quickly discover that a significant problem accompanies Paul's arrival. And that's that Jewish Christians were being told that Paul was public enemy, number one. The man that's done all this work, the man that's brought all these relief funds is considered public enemy number one. Let's go back to verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. 
Now, I know it's easy to just jump up to the response, but I think there's at least two questions we need to address in these verses. What's really the essence of their concern? Because I think if we miss their concern, we can misunderstand the text. And the other thing we need to actually ask is, is it true? What's their concern, and is it true? So to the issue. On the issue, the elders want, want Paul to know well, God has been doing awesome work among the Gentiles. God has been doing an awesome work among the Jews as well. Thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. God is at work. In fact, the, the tense of the Greek participle here, have come to faith in our text, emphasizes the reality that these Jews are true Christians. They, they understand that Jesus is the, was the ultimate sacrifice and payment for their sin. They get that. They, they, they recognize and know that they are justified by faith alone, not by the works of the law. Even more, they're persevering in faith despite the cost. They're staying. They're Christians. But the problem is, is these true Christians have a problem with Paul. A majority of these new Christians have been taught that that certain aspects of the Jewish law still need to be upheld by Christians. Notice what does he say? They're zealous for the law. So let's kind of peel apart the essence of this conflict. I think there's three things, clarifications we can make to help us understand what's going on and what's not going on in this conflict. Number one, the conflict is not about what Paul is teaching Gentile Christians about Moses. Very clear. This has nothing to do with Paul's teaching to the Gentiles. I mean, we already know from Acts chapter 15 that the question of the law and the Gentiles has been settled. The conflict that's going on in our passage is centered on the concern that Paul was teaching the Jews who live out there among the Gentiles, outside of the realms of Israel, teaching those people, those Jews, to forsake the law of Moses. Number two, conflict is not, is not about the message of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That's, that's, not, that's not the problem. No, they're, they're convinced. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. They're convinced. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. They believe it. It's the gospel. The question is, it's a question of discipleship. The question of Christian discipleship. How should a Jewish Christian live out their Christian faith? That's, that's really what we're landing on. How should a Jewish Christian be living out their Christian faith? And finally, to make it clear, the conflict was not about obedience to the moral law. It's not about obedience to the moral law. See, these three points are essential to help us grasp the true essence of the problem. These Christians are not advocating a gospel that depends on Jesus and Moses. They're not advocating that. 
No, no, they recognize, again, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises to his covenant people, Israel. They recognize it. Rather, the problem seems to be this. Should Jewish Christians continue to observe the sign, the covenant sign of circumcision and uphold the cultural traditions of the law as a God-honoring expression of their discipleship to Jesus Christ? That's the question in the text. We need to have that clear because otherwise we can bring in arguments from Acts 15 and maybe some of the arguments that Paul has in some of his epistles, but this is the argument in this text. So is it a God-honoring expression of Christian discipleship for Jews to continue in these things? So that's their question. And their answer to the question is, yes, it is. So now to the, our second question that we have. Is it true? Has Paul been teaching Jewish Christians who live out in the Gentile world to just drop Moses altogether? Is that what he's been teaching? Well, the answer is, I think we can say a very nuanced no. And I say nuanced, and you'll see it how we developed this here. But there is some nuance to this, and that's, that's often where conflicts come up, is in not understanding entirely what somebody's teaching. See, on the one hand, it's clear that Paul was not actively teaching Jews to abandon the law who lived outside of Israel. He was not doing it. We've read through the entire book of Acts, up chapter 21. We haven't seen Paul do it one time. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, right after the church says, hey, Gentiles don't have to uphold the law. We just have a couple things we want them to make sure they're doing. Acts chapter 16, verse 3, he takes Timothy, who had a Gentile father but a Jewish mother, he's Jewish, raised really Jewish, and he takes him out and has him circumcised. He doesn't say, nah, Timothy, doesn't matter. He actually carries forward in it for some ministry reasons that are important. In addition to this, we read through his letters and we see the same thing. What does Paul openly argue against? He openly argues against Gentile believers taking on the Jewish covenant sign of circumcision. He's like, man, if you're going after that, you're, you're, you're missing the gospel. He never once forbids Jewish believers from circumcising their kids. I mean, he says positive things about the law. Romans 3, 31, do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Romans 7, 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy, is righteous and it's good. So, so there's, there's aspects where he's upholding the law. But on the other hand, it's kind of easy to understand why people thought that he was teaching against the law. And that's because he wrote about the believer's freedom in terms that could be viewed as an outright rejection of the law. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Here's the qualifying phrase. Though not being myself under the law. That I might win those under the law. 
We go to Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 13. He's talking about the problem of sin. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. And why? Since you are not under the law, but under grace. Oh, and don't forget about Romans 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Counts for anything. But only faith working through love. So it's not like Paul hasn't made some statements that probably raised more than one eyebrow and are probably being leveraged by certain people. But the accusations aren't true. They're not true. Paul is completely innocent in this matter. The attacks against his ministry are nothing more than malicious misrepresentations. That's the thing. Misrepresentations of everything that he's taught. And, And we see this happen all the day, all the time in our day and age, right? I mean, read anything on social media, it's probably a misrepresentation of what somebody else said. And all this leaves Paul who's just shown up with his massive relief fund, news of God's incredible work among the Gentiles, it leaves him in a compromised position, even though he's been a faithful minister of the gospel. I mean, just think about it for a minute. Put yourself in Paul's place. For some of you, that might be hard. For some of you, that might be really easy right now. Put yourself in Paul's place. How are you going to respond? You're going to lash out at these Christians and, 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 or at the elders who should be defending you? You're going to lash out? You're going to storm out in righteous indignation, offended that anyone, anyone would question your commitment to God? After everything I've done. You're going to spiral into despair and depression because because nobody believes you? Are you going to run out and openly confront the people who are spreading these rumors? How are you prone to respond? Well, as we turn to the elders' proposal... We're going to see that Paul responded in the most unexpected way. He responds in the most unexpected way. Let's go to verse 23. So the elders suggestion, their plan is this. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, that's all the way back to Acts 15, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So they're making it clear. What we're talking about right here has nothing to do with Acts 15. Then Paul took the men 
And the next day he purified himself along with them and he went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So let's kind of peel this apart. What are they asking Paul to do? Because we can read this text and, and be like, I'm not quite sure what they're asking. What, what's this head shaving and sacrificing and cleansing and vows? What's all going on here? It's interesting to note, first of all, that they don't go on the offense. They, they don't go on the offense. They, they don't openly defend Paul's innocence. No, they actually ask Paul to do the most surprising thing. In this thing, they're asking Paul to absorb the cost of his own defense by publicly displaying his devotion to the law. They're asking Paul to take it all on, even the cost. But to the question, what are they asking him to do? They're asking him to participate in a purification and a vow fulfillment ritual. And while this might seem pretty out of place, for a Christian, we, we need to understand three things about the request that helps us understand why Paul's going along with it. Number one, when it comes to vows, we got four guys that have vows. They're Christians. We need to understand that vows are not about sin and forgiveness. We could go read through a bunch of texts in the Old Testament, but I'll summarize it to make it a little more accessible. What are vows? Vows are heartfelt expressions of thankfulness to God for past blessings or humbled petitions to God for, for present needs and future blessings. So, so that, that's what's going on in a vow. It's thankfulness or it's a humble petition. And, and so what's going on during that, that, that time is a person sets aside this time, normally about 30 days, could be longer, whatever it's set up as, and they go through this time where they're not allowed to cut their hair, they're not allowed to trim their beard, there's some foods that they can't eat, and it's all as a public sign of their commitment to God that they're under a vow. And at the conclusion of their vow, when that time is wrapped up, the individual would undergo ritual purification, and they would shave their hair, and they would present their hair along with the required offerings to the priesthood, to declare the fulfillment of their vow before the Lord. We declared it to be started. There's a reason for it. The time it's going to be established and they come and close it at the end. So to put it simply, a vow was a public and and, and costly expression of delight in and devotion to and dependence on God himself. That's what's going on in the vow. And it's interesting to point out that they're not asking Paul to do anything that he hasn't done as a Christian. All we have to do is look back at Acts chapter 18 to see that Paul has actually taken a vow himself as a Christian. Acts 18, 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer. And then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Centuria, he had his hair cut for he was under a vow. So they're not asking him to do something that's outside the box. But finally, number three. By asking Paul to take on the financial burden of these men's vows, 
Really what they're doing is they're asking him to display his devotion to and his support of the law in the most undeniable way. That he's subsidizing the vows of these other men. Not that he's merely teaching that it's okay, but he's actively supporting it by financing it. So so that's what's going on in, in their plan. And in all of this, they're asking Paul to prove his adversaries wrong, not by his public teaching, but by his public actions. That's what they see in their plan, and that's what they're asking Paul to do. But we might ask, what does Paul think about this plan? I mean, I mean in Acts... We're, we're not given what Paul's thinking. We're told he goes on and does it. But the question is, is by what spirit does Paul go along with their advice? You know what I mean by that, right? How many of you have undertaken a task with the most miserable, defiant spirit? I'm just going along with this. I think it's stupid, right? I mean, is that how Paul's doing it? Is he, is he doing this under protest? Or is he doing this with a heart to glorify God and bring unity to the church? Does he think it's stupid? Well, even though, even though scholars disagree, I believe we have warrant in God's word, in the word, to believe that Paul humbly and freely embraced their plan. Because for Paul, all we have to do is look at his life example to see in the clearest terms that gospel clarity and Christian unity were always more important to Paul than his individual liberties. Always. Let let me demonstrate how this point works out, number one in our passage, number two in Paul's overall philosophy of ministry. First of all, what does Paul not do? But Paul doesn't push back against the elders' plan. We, we have no record of that. He, he doesn't play the Paul the Apostle card, does he? he? He doesn't respond with righteous indignation and annoyance. He doesn't say, hey, James, like, like, come on, man, what's wrong with these Christians in your church in Jerusalem? Don't they know who I am? I'm the Apostle Paul, man. I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. I mean, do you really think I came here all the way to Jerusalem to be wrongfully accused and be treated like this after everything I've done? All the financial support I've raised? This is garbage. He also doesn't attack James and the elders. He doesn't, he doesn't say, man, like, grow a spine. Heaven's sake. Take care of the problem yourselves. These are your people. This is your problem. I mean, if you don't have the guts to stand up to your own people and take on the trouble yourselves, what's going on? Why are you trying to slough it off on me? I haven't been in a closet teaching in private. You know what I teach. Why do I have to bail you out of your own conflict? I mean, after all, you're the, one, the ones that allowed it to happen. 
Come on, James, man. Like, like I've sacrificed more than any of you could ever imagine. And you're asking me to do this? He doesn't do that, does he? In fact, if we dig into the underlying grammar of the elders' suggestion and their plan, we see the most surprising thing. The way it's presented in the original language is that the elders expect Paul to be in full agreement with their plan. They don't think they're suggesting anything that Paul is going to say no to. Which brings us to the second reason. Moving from our text itself outside of the text. All we have to do is read through the New Testament and we can see very clearly that Paul's philosophy of ministry is driven by two great goals. The salvation of unbelieving Jews and Gentiles and the unity of God's people. That those two things are the pillars that uphold his entire ministry. It's his goal and his focus in all things. Writing to the Philippian church, speaking of of the unity of God's people, he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. How are they going to complete his joy? By being like-minded, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You know, it's like that one mind sandwich, like one on each end, one-minded And if we stopped at these verses, we might think that the best way to build up a church and build unity in it is is through rank-and-file conformity. You know, like a strict list of rules and regulations. Everybody does these things. You walk outside the line. We know you're outside the line, and we're going to beat you back in. We're going to push you back out all the way. But that's not what he says. We, We don't need to draft a bunch of rules and expectations. No, no, Paul turns to everyone in this church in Philippi and he, and, he, and he says, how do we build this kind of unity in a church? We do it by lifting one another up in love. We lower ourselves to lift others up in love, starting in verse three. Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. No, notice what we see here. The greatest obstruction to unity and joy and love in the church according to Paul. The greatest obstruction is not our brother and sister in Christ, but our self-absorption and our obsession with our personal status. That's what Paul is calling out in Philippians 2. He's saying the greatest problem with unity is often our obsession with ourselves. But see, now Paul wrote this to the Philippian church a number of years before this event, and he's put in a place where he has to practice what he preaches. You know how that, that kind of comes around? Like you can be teaching it, teaching it, teaching it like to your kids or your Sunday school class and then all of a sudden it's like, oh man, now I gotta do what I was teaching. 
See, see, Paul's confronted with a circumstance in this very event that gives him the opportunity to practice what he's been preaching. Yeah, he might have his own ideas about their strategy. But in all of this, he chooses to put the needs of the Jerusalem church above his own because he cares more about gospel unity among God's people than he does about how he looks in the moment or about what it's going to cost him. He knows there's a cost. He accepts the cost. But there's a goal in the cost. Secondly, he does this because, as we've already noted, he's committed to winning the most to Christ as humanly possible by the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting verse 19. We touched on part of this earlier. We'll grab it in a bigger piece now. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. What's his goal? To win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God. See, that's the second qualification. Not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Now let's be clear. Paul is not saying the most important thing that matters in the Christian life is fitting in and being liked by other people. That, that, that's not his goal here. And I like being liked. But that's not what he's saying. No, he's saying when he went to the Jews, when he went to the Jews, he constrained his Christian freedoms. He has broader freedoms in Christ than he had under the law. But he's like, when I'm with the Jews, I'm constraining my freedoms in Christ because I'm going to abide by their scruples so that I can meet them and work with them and share the gospel with them. When, when, he, when he was with the weak, he constrained his freedom to the consciences of the weak so as not to present an offense that would get in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he went to the Gentiles, he lived and ministered in the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though it was a freedom, he makes clear, that was constrained. It was bound in by the moral prescriptions of the law and directed towards the salvation of the law. So as he's with the Gentiles, yeah, he's eating meat sacrificed to idols. He's not worried about it. But he's not going to the temple to meet with temple prostitutes. There's, there's lines. See, therefore, I think we can rightly say that the Paul's willingness to set aside his rightful freedoms as a Christian and, and to live under the law was not driven by the approval of man or a misguided passion to pacify the scruples of the unbelieving Jews only. It was a greater goal. 
It's a far greater goal. He set aside his rightful freedoms so he could introduce unbelieving Jews to the glorious freedom that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when Paul is undertaking this plan that they have laid out, I'm under the conviction that it's more than the unity of the church in Jerusalem that Paul is fighting for. He's taking it as an opportunity to show the yet unbelieving Jews that are in the city of Jerusalem who he is, what the gospel is truly about, and that they don't need to be afraid of what he's teaching. So yes, he's looking to bring unity to the church, but his, his vision is much broader. It's very much broader. See, friends, we know. We know from reading Paul through his letters that he wouldn't give an inch if he was being asked to do something that would compromise the gospel. I mean, he stood Peter's face called him out in front of everybody. He's not going to back down if they're asking something wrong. But what's equally clear is that when it came to matters of custom and culture and ceremony and tradition, Paul was always ready. He was ready to make certain concessions for the clarity of the gospel and the unity of God's people. Because when it came down to it, he ultimately wasn't concerned about himself. He was driven by passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, as F.F. Bruce put it in his commentary, a truly emancipated spirit is not in bondage to its own emancipation. Big word. Freedom. Liberty. A truly free spirit is not in bondage to its own freedom. So as we close this morning, I'd like to close with three open-ended questions. We could look at applying this various ways, but I thought it just might be good to leave some open questions for each of us to consider because we all file at different places on the spectrum when it comes to this question. First question is this. Am I prone to quickly believe the worst about other Christians? Am am I prone to quickly believe the worst? Or am I ready to grant grace as I pursue greater clarity about their concern? It's an important question. That's actually what's happening to Paul. I think we're so quick to try to make judgments and jump on the train and beat down it's important we make sure we understand the whole argument and what's going on. Number two, am I more apt to protect and promote myself or to promote unity in the church? Is that my focus? In the church of God, is it, is it just, it's me, my thing, my stuff, my way? Or am I more concerned about promoting, actively promoting unity and grace in the church of God? 
It's a question that comes up in the text. It's one that every one of us has to answer. Final question. What areas of bondage do I have in my life? And I'm not talking about necessarily our bondage to sin, but if I were to rephrase the question, it would be something like this. What freedoms am I unwilling to sacrifice for the unity of the church and the clarity of the gospel? What freedoms am I unwilling to sacrifice? And we're talking about our gospel freedoms in Christ. Which ones am I unwilling to sacrifice for the good of God's people and the expanse of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The questions we need to ask about this text. And as we go into next week, we're going to see that we can do all the right things and still not get the result that we wanted, but it was still the right thing to do. Let's close one of the prayer.